So we are in the eighth week of a sermon series on rediscovering joy through the book of Philippians. And uh, we are moving into the third chapter this morning. Uh, I requested Sarita to read uh, the passage for us. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Uh, over to you, Sarita. Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to, the, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, uh, Sarita. If you remember, we began the sermon series on rediscovering joy with a simple question. Do you want to be joyful? That, that's the question we began this series with. And today, seven sermons later, I would like to ask a follow-up question. Why are we not joyful? Why are we not joyful? This is both a question and a statement. Um, I, I've preached about seven sermons on joy over the last couple of months. And yes, praying, uh, preparing and preaching these sermons has helped me grow in joy, being joyful. But I recognize that I'm nowhere near as joyful as I ought to be. We began the series in, in late June. How much have you grown in being joyful in these past two months? Are you as joyful as you would like to be? Are you as joyful as Christ would like you to be? And, and why are we not joyful? I think that's the core issue that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is trying to address the passage we just read. That's the, that's the real thing that we will be wrestling with this morning. Why are we not joyful enough? I'd like to draw two things out for us from this passage. First, uh, I want to talk about the joy killer. What robs 
gospel joy from our lives. And second, we look at growing in joy by growing in knowing Christ. Two things, the joy killer and growing in joy in knowing Christ. Let's start with the first thing, the joy killer. What is the joy killer that Paul is talking about in this passage? If you remember the first verse, Paul starts us off by calling us to rejoice in the Lord. But after spending just one verse in this call to joy, he immediately jumps into a long paragraph of warning. And there is a connection between the call to joy in the first verse and the warning in the second paragraph. The first verse invites us to joy, and the second paragraph warns us of something that can rob gospel joy in our lives. So what is Paul warning us about? Verse 2 and 3 that we read. For look out, look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. When Paul talks about those who mutilate the flesh, he's talking about circumcision. And, and Paul is warning us that legalism can rob gospel joy from our lives. Let me just step back and help us understand the context um, about circumcision and everything else in this passage. Centuries before Jesus was born, God gave his people circumcision as a sign that they belonged to him. Circumcision was an old sign of the old covenant. But Christ Jesus he brought in a new covenant of grace. The old sign of the old covenant was no longer needed. And in bringing a new covenant of grace, Jesus brought in new signs like communion, like, like baptism. And in the new covenant of grace, we are not justified by what we do. We are justified and accepted and loved by God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. But some Jews in, in, in the church at Philippi, who Paul was writing this letter to, but some Jews uh, who had become followers of Jesus were wrongly insisting, insisting that every new Christian had to be circumcised. So we are seeing that a lot of these Gentile people, people who are not Jews, uh, come to faith in Jesus, and these Jewish Christians were insisting and demanding that all of them had to be circumcised. I am so glad they did not succeed. Now, I, as, as of you know, most of you know, I come from a Hindu Brahmin family. I came to faith in Christ Jesus when I was 19 years old. And I am so glad that nobody told me that I had to be circumcised to believe in Jesus. I'm thankful that that, that, didn't, that didn't happen. Jokes apart, in, in insisting that every new believer had to be circumcised, these legalistic Jews were actually setting aside grace and were seeking to be accepted by God by what they do. This is legalism. Trying to please God, trying to win God's approval by our obedience to the laws. 
And Paul warns us that we will lose gospel joy if we move away from grace and into legalism. Legalism is a joy killer. Legalism is a joy killer because we could never please God by our works. So that's circumcision in, in Paul's time, in his culture. No longer an issue. Nobody's demanding anyone be circumcised anymore, thankfully. So how does this translate into our culture? Circumcision is not what we are fighting, but legalism or our tendency to earn God's blessing by our good behavior is something we're definitely fighting. And, and how does Paul's warning that legalism will kill gospel joy translate into our lives? In one sense, it's not really a risk for us because I don't think anyone, any of us are trying to please God by obeying archaic Old Testament laws. Uh, I, I'm sure... I don't have to worry about any of us dragging a goat uh, when we uh, resume in-person gathering and, and insisting that we sacrifice the goat for the atonement of sins, as, as they did in the Old Testament. I don't have to worry about any of that. I don't have to worry about that kind of legalism. Uh, I'm not worried that we will start depending on Old Testament laws. My worry is that we are writing our own laws. Old Testament legalism may not be a problem, but a convenient, self-defined moralism is definitely a problem. Every one of us is writing our own set of laws that conveniently justify the lifestyles we have chosen. Lifestyles that so often go against God's plan. Let me just give us one example. We quite often, and I speak for myself too, quite often we completely forget Jesus during the week, through the week. Uh, but we turn up to worship Jesus on Sunday and, and, and we kind of fool ourselves into believing that we are living a good Christian life. And then at the, at the end of the service, we, we tell each other, oh, I was so convicted about the sermon. Uh, worship was, was beautiful. And then we go back to living the same old Christless lives through the week. Very little transformation. Maybe none at all or maybe too slow a transformation. You see, we've just invented a new convenient and self-defined moral code for ourselves. We may not say so in so many words, but we are functionally living as if coming to church on Sunday gives us a license to live as we please during the week. Sure, the sermon may convict us, the sermon on Sunday may convict us, but our lives during the week do not I speak this for myself first, for anyone isn't, isn't this true? Do you know what's the biggest convenient new law that we have all 
written for ourselves? It's this. Salvation is equal to justification alone. Sanctification is not so important. That's a new law we've written for ourselves. What do I mean by this? Simple. If we seek forgiveness, but do not commit to transformation enough, we've truncated the gospel. We've truncated the gospel to a gospel of justification without sanctification. This is a new law. It's not the biblical law. It's a new law we've written for us. We celebrate Jesus forgiving us, but we do not yield enough to Jesus transforming us. Guess what? We already have justification, so sanctification can wait till I'm better placed in my life and my career. This is the new truncated law that we have written for ourselves. The law of receiving forgiveness without committing transformation. And haven't we all done this some degree or the other? Why is this a problem? Why is this legalism that Paul is warning about and this convenient self-defined moralism that we are one? Why is this problem? How does this rob gospel joy from our lives? And the answer is simple. All of these things take us away from Jesus by reducing our day-to-day dependency on him. And this is how we lose gospel joy. Functionally, so many of us have substituted salvation with success. We have substituted salvation success. Salvation should be our greatest joy and our greatest desire. But for so many of us, life and career success has become our greatest joy, greatest desire. And so when we substitute salvation with success, we no longer feel the need for Jesus our Savior. When we substitute salvation with success, it is a question of time before we start edging Jesus out of our lives. Do you know why? Let me put it this way. The whole aim of success is to tell the world, see what I have done. The whole whole point of success is to tell the world, see what I have accomplished. The whole goal of success is, is see, is to tell the world, see how good I am. Isn't this the subtext of success? So if this is the real heart of success, then having Jesus in your life means acknowledging that he has done it for you. 
that leaves us nothing to boast about. So if we pursue success over salvation, we are going to edge Jesus out of our lives. You know this. You can tell during seasons when, when you've just been too preoccupied with something in your career or life or relationships, money, whatever. You know these, these unhealthy preoccupations do edge Jesus. Preoccupation of success do edge Jesus out of your life. I'm vulnerable to this. I am vulnerable to edging Jesus out of my life if I pursue ministry success more than I pursue the joy of salvation. And you're vulnerable to this if you pursue career success over salvation. And so both legalism and our version of a convenient self-styled moralism drops gospel joy from our lives because both of these things take us away from Jesus. This is the joy killer that Paul is talking about. And that's the first thing I wanted to draw out for us to message. The second thing this passage is calling us to see is growing in joy by growing in knowing Christ. Growing in joy by, know, by growing in knowing Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We've been seeing in the series that the key to gospel joy is knowing Christ. The more we know Christ, the more joyful we are. The less we know Christ, the less joy we have. So what does Paul really mean when he talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? What, what does it mean when Paul says, when Paul talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Paul is forcing us to consider Christ Jesus in comparison with everything else in our lives. That's what he's forcing us to do. He's forcing us to consider Jesus in comparison with everything else in our lives. Listen, we consider Jesus on, on Sundays. And, and the rest of the week, we consider our lives and our lives. And Paul is not going to allow us to do that. Uh, Paul is forcing us to place Jesus and everything else in our lives side by side. And he's asking us if Jesus, if we feel that Jesus is really so much better. We all come to Sundays proclaiming Jesus is better. That's true. But we also go back to Mondays and live it as if so many other things are better than Jesus. And, and, and today, through this passage, God is not going to allow us to continue. 
Is Jesus really more precious to your heart than the greatest success of your life? Is Jesus really more dear to your heart than your spouse, your children, and your parents? Is Jesus really more exciting to you than the wildest weekend parties? Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count all these things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To really know Jesus is to know him to be more delightful and more pleasurable than all things in life. But how? How can I know Jesus like this? How do we come to a place where Jesus gives us more joy than any career or life accomplishment or, or any comfort or any indulgence? How can, we, how can I come to a place where I love Jesus more than anything else? I know all of us desire this. There are very few of us who are going to say, no, 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 Jesus is just second. I want everything else to be first. No, I, I don't know anyone like that. All of us, everyone I know, followers of Jesus, genuinely desire to put Jesus first. And everything else around that. That's what we struggle with. So how can I come to a place where I love Jesus more than anything else? And the answer is right here in the passage for us in verses 8. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The key to knowing Jesus more, the key to loving Jesus more, more than anything else, is to realize that we do not have any righteousness of our own. And we need the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Hang on. I'm absolutely certain that meant nothing to him. Let me, let, me, let me break that. I'm going to say one sentence now, which, which, which I hope is going to bring the, the entire weight of this sermon and the entire weight of this passage to bear onto our hearts. Here's what I have to say. If success in career life or ministry has become more important to me than salvation, then my accomplishment has become my righteousness. Let me repeat that. If success in life, career, or ministry has become more important to me than salvation, then my accomplishments has become my righteousness. If our accomplishments have become a righteousness, we are not going to feel any need of Jesus. Why would we need Jesus? Because we've, just like we've 
Just like we substituted salvation with success, we have substituted righteousness, which can come only through Christ, with accomplishment. So we feel good about ourselves. We no longer feel the need for Jesus. At some level, we have all twisted and rewritten the gospel narrative. The gospel narrative is sin and salvation. That's, that's the gospel narrative. But we have changed our gospel narrative to success and faith. You see, sin and salvation should be the most important narrative of our lives. Ask yourself, is that the most important narrative in your heart? Is that what's driving you? No. We have made success and failure the most important narrative of our lives. Sin and salvation and Jesus our Savior should be the governing principle of our lives. But no, we have allowed success and failure to rule our lives. We think of sin and salvation on Sundays, but we think of success and failure from Monday to Saturday. Which of these two do you think is going to be important? We do not feel the desire to love Jesus more than anything else because we have changed the rules of the game. We have changed, we have altered the most basic gospel paradigm. We have ignored and thrown out the rules of sin and salvation and we are playing a make-believe game with the temporary and, and fake rules of success and failure. Again, I speak to myself first more than anyone else. And no wonder we don't love Jesus more than anything else in our lives. You see, if our entire life is trained in the sin salvation narrative, we will love Jesus more than anything else and we will have true and lasting joy. Let me repeat that. If our entire life is framed in the sin salvation narrative, we will love Jesus more than anything else and we will have true and lasting joy. But if our life is framed in the success-failure narrative, we will not love Jesus more than anything else. We will not have true and lasting joy. Think of it like this. Every child eats milk. Every infant eats milk. What do you think is going to happen if you give the infant ice cream every time she cries for milk? Keep doing this long enough and you're going to kill the healthy appetite for milk. You're going to replace it with the unhealthy appetite for ice cream. Keep doing this long enough, and this child, this infant, is never going to drink milk again. 
she's only going to want extreme. This is exactly what we have done to our spiritual appetites of Christ by feeding on the success failure narrative again and again. What I'm talking about is something so deep in our subconscious. This is going to shape how we live. This is going to shape your choices every single day. This is going to shape what you think is important for you. But I'm talking about and, and only the Holy Spirit can bring about the change we're talking about, the deep change, to move away from the success failure narrative, to move in to the sin salvation. So how can we grow in Jesus, in knowing Jesus more? How can we grow in loving Jesus more? It's a simple answer. We must come to Jesus as a partner. We must come to Jesus as a beggar. As a pauper who has nothing. This is the only way to know Jesus more and more. It is to come to him as a pauper and as a beggar, to come to him with a humble heart and a, and a contrite spirit. But here's the real deal. And may I say, here is the deal breaker. If we are living in the fake failure success, success narrative of life, we will never, ever find the motivation to come to Jesus as a pop. If we are living in the success-failure construct, that will never allow us to come humbly as a beggar, as a pauper before Christ. It is only when we discard the success-failure narrative and truly embrace the sin-salvation narrative that we can come to Jesus as a pauper. As a beggar, as someone who's needy, then we can know him more and we can love him. Do you remember the, the kindergarten story titled The Emperor's New Clothes? The Emperor's New Clothes. Remember it? Uh, the story of this king who kept wanting new clothes until two con men came as tailors, as um, fashion designers in, in today's parlance. These con men, these camsters, they came as fashion designers and, and, and tricked the emperor to walking around naked. The failure success narrative of life will make us walk the path of this foolish Emperor. It will fool us into believing we are wearing the best clothes ever. When Christ comes again, we will be caught naked without the righteousness of Christ, having clothed ourselves with our accomplishments because we've somewhere down the line thought of our accomplishments as our righteousness. Success and failure narrative will trick you into feeling like an emperor now. We will spend eternity like a pauper 
taken, separated from. The sin salvation narrative, on the other hand, will make us walk the path toward Christ. If we keep coming to Jesus as a pauper, as a beggar, naked, and longing to be clothed with his righteousness and not through our accomplishments, we will live like an emperor with Christ for all of eternity. So decide today, would you rather be? Would you rather be right now? Would you rather be the emperor? Or would you rather be the pop? Decide today. Do you want to live in the failure success narrative? Do you want that to make the central construct of your life? Do you want to live in the sin salvation narrative, making that as the central construct of your life? Come to Jesus as a father. Come to Jesus as a beggar who has nothing. If we are chasing success, we will never be able to come to Jesus as a God. Never. Success is what we want. That will never allow us to come to Jesus for any. On the other hand, we come to Jesus as a pauper, we will discover what true and wholesome success really is. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. And Lord, what we, are, what we are begging you for this morning is by your spirit, uh, Lord, uh, a, a really deep and fundamental shift in the pattern of our thinking. And I, I know the shift goes beyond our consciousness into the depths and the depths and the depths of our subconsciousness. For this entire narrative of our lives to change from success and failure into sin and salvation. Because it is only in the sin and salvation narrative that Jesus fits in. There is no place for Jesus, the success, failure narrative. There is no place for Jesus, our Savior, the success and failure narrative. So, Spirit of God, we pray, even now, through worship, through the sermon, through communion, through the powerhouse, you you bring about this work deep in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.